I'm Greg Jarrett. I'm Sandra Smith. I'm Charles Payne, and this is the Fox News Rundown. Tuesday, April 7th, 2020. I'm Jessica Rosenthal. Are the stay-at-home orders working in some areas? Maybe. At this point, we are confident enough that we are not going to see uh, New York or New Orleans like surge. But even if the curve flattens or drops, we'll never be able to go back to normal until there's a vaccine. I'm Dave Anthony. It's a way millions of Americans now communicate. But some people are ruining the fun. Hacking into Zoom, doing what's called bombing. There are pranksters that gather together and strategize on how to break in to, for example, your child's class environment and then utter obscenities or insult um, uh, teachers, oftentimes with racial uh, offensive language. And I'm Tom Shalhoub. I've got the final word on the Fox News Rundown. Surgeon General Jerome Adams told us that this week may be the worst week yet for the COVID-19 virus. This is going to be our Pearl Harbor moment, our 9-11 moment, only it's not going to be localized. It's going to be happening all over the country. Stark and heavy words as the state of New York surged past 4,700 deaths, most of them in New York City. New Jersey's seen more than 1,000 deaths and more than 41,000 cases. The state of Michigan seen more than 700 deaths with more than 17,000 cases. The hotspots vary. But at the beginning of all of this, Washington state, specifically King County, was at the center of what would become an outbreak. We do start the news at four with some breaking news tonight. The CDC confirms the first case of novel or new coronavirus in the U.S. It was recorded in the state January 21st. Five weeks later, on February 29th, the state reported its first death at the Life Care Nursing Facility in Kirkland, where dozens of people later died. A surge was feared. But then the week of March 11th, Washington's Governor Jay Inslee announced a ban on large gatherings and then announced that schools would close before later issuing stay-at-home orders for the state. Now, the state has just over 8,000 cases and a total of 338 deaths, most in King County. California was also fearing the worst. Uh, The new public health order that we're announcing will require San Franciscans to remain at home. San Francisco Mayor London Breed announced a shelter-in-place order on March 16th along with six other counties after Santa Clara began seeing a surge of cases. But thankfully, as of now, the state with 40 million residents has fewer confirmed cases than Michigan, just over 14,000, with 343 deaths. Even as California and Washington's governors have warned of surges and a desperate need for personal protective gear and medical equipment, both states are now donating hundreds of ventilators back to the national stockpile, noting other states need them more. So what gives? Did mitigation and shutdown efforts work? California became the first place with a statewide stay-at-home order March 19th, but New York quickly followed. Or was it really a lack of testing? California's tested fewer than 120,000 people, and the governor's admitted it's been too slow. The evidence isn't clear to me yet, but it's very suggestive. And so I'm, I'm excited, and I think that this week could hold some good news. Sarah Kobe's an epidemiologist and professor at the University of Chicago. Uh, It looks like there's a bit of a slowdown in California, though, again, it's still too soon to say that with confidence. Um, I hope that we're going to see something in Illinois fairly soon. New York, there's not really such a clear signal yet. But I think, again, this week should resolve things. Yeah. And when you say this week, I mean, that's a double edged sword, right? Because we're hearing from the Surgeon General that, in fact, this week should be maybe horrific for, for a lot of us. 
Yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, obviously, different states and different you know counties imposed uh, restrictions at different times. So what I'm saying, I'm looking forward to seeing what happens this week. What I'm really looking forward to seeing is whether places that started mitigation efforts a little earlier are seeing the sort of downturn that we would expect to show that the mitigation efforts are working. But you're absolutely right that you know most of the country is is not there yet, and the cases and the deaths are are probably going to be climbing. Could it be a, about a lack of testing? For example, California has 40 million people, um, you know, and, and we have just over 14,000 cases here, 2,500 people hospitalized, but we've tested fewer than 120,000 people. So is it possible that we actually have far more people who have been infected, are infected, we just don't know about it? There's definitely more infection than what we're confirming uh, through tests. There's no question that most of infections probably are not actually being recorded. That said, if the testing is relatively even over time, and here we're really just interested in short time scales, so there aren't dramatic changes in testing capacity and time, we can still infer changes to the overall epidemic by looking at that fraction of the population that is being tested. Now, Dr. Bob Wachter is the chair of the Department of Medicine at UC San Francisco, and he agrees. He says California's numbers aren't just about a lack of tests. There is no question that mitigation has worked in certain areas. Uh, about three weeks ago in San Francisco and New York City, the number of cases was about the same. And San Francisco and other areas in Northern California aggressively uh, uh, moved to mitigation. So that's not testing. Testing might uh, mildly influence the number of cases because if you have more testing available, then patients with mild disease might be more likely to get uh, uh, to be diagnosed with COVID. But it really shouldn't influence the number of hospitalizations or uh, or the number of deaths. So this is not testing. This really is the effects of of uh, mitigation that we're seeing in California. Also, have seen in the state of Washington. Washington was after they had an outbreak, so they they saw what it looked like and they took it very seriously. I think we've been very lucky in Northern California that we did it without having a big outbreak. I ask about testing because if we don't know what people are being hospitalized with, right, if they if they test negative for the flu, but they maybe have what's called ILI, right, influenza-like illness, is it possible that that's what's happening, is that because of such of a lack of testing in California, we might have people who have ILI or flu-like symptoms, but we just simply can't say that they have COVID-19? Maybe in the early days, three or four weeks ago, that might have been true, but um uh, today, in, in in virtually all Cal California hospitals, uh, you're able to test people in the hospital. So, it, my my hospital, for example, uh, has a capacity now to do four or five hundred tests a day. And so, anybody who's sick enough to be hospitalized, and actually anybody who's who has any symptoms at all, we are testing. When you hear that Governor Newsom is sending back. 500 ventilators to the national stockpile, basically loaning them to the national stockpile, I should say, um, even as the state is waiting for its own surge, even as Governor Newsom says, we need to prepare for a capacity of 50,000 extra beds. Do you get nervous about the, that idea of sending of sending all those ventilators back? I mean, there's so much uncertainty around that everything you do has a risk-benefit equation that you have to weigh. I'd say at this point, certainly in Northern California, at this point, we are confident enough that we are not going to see a New York or New Orleans-like surge. 
that I think the ethical thing for us to do is to begin looking at some of our capacity that we built up uh, a month ago. We didn't know what would happen. It could have been that we were in New York today, but it's very much looking like we won't be. And therefore, if there are other parts of the country that need resources more than we do, I think the ethical thing is to begin sharing them. I know a lot of people in California, especially on my social media feeds, who are convinced that they have already had COVID-19. They say they tested negative for the flu in December, January, but they had the dry cough, extreme fatigue. Is that possible or unlikely? It's possible, but unlikely. So at UCSF <laughs> uh, Medical Center, where I work, uh, we have tested a lot of people now uh, who have come in with symptoms of fever and cough and maybe even a little bit of shortness of breath. And uh, the, the percentage of those patients who turn out to be positive is running about 5%. So, and they're all convinced, oh, of course, wow. they have it, which is, which is normal. <laughs> if, if, if I had those symptoms, I would think I had it, be worried that I had it. But the, the data say that about one, of, one in 20 of them have it. In, in the pre-COVID world, if we can remember that, a whole lot of people had cough, fever, shortness of breath, wheezing. I mean, it, it, these are very common symptoms in the winter. You may not have the flu as in influenza. That's a specific kind of virus. But there are a whole lot of viral illnesses going around. The majority of people who have symptoms that uh, are convinced they had COVID uh, almost certainly didn't. Finally, doctor, let's talk about, you know, if this week is the, you know, the peak, right? The, as the Surgeon General said, the, the 9-11 or Pearl Harbor moment, which is obviously terrifying. Um, what happens after that? Like, how long do we, how long do we wait until we stop staying at home? I imagine modeling will really play a, a role here, but also because it's so regional, because some areas are so much harder hit than others, do some areas come back more quickly than, than others? Or do we all sort of have to keep this sort of shelter in, in place, shelter at home mentality um, collectively for a while? Well, I think we all have to keep it collectively for a while, in part because everybody's still at risk, and in part because uh, you know the, there are no borders between the states or between the countries when it comes to this thing. So uh, I heard someone say this is like having a peeing section in the pool. It, it doesn't work very well. Uh, you know, things spread very easily. So it's 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 going to be important that at least for now and for the next several weeks, we're all on the same page. After that. As cases begin to go down, we probably will reach a point that it becomes uh, reasonable to start letting up the restrictions, and that will probably be somewhat regional. Uh, it, it probably will be that certain areas are just seeing no cases in their community, and they have the capacity to do widespread testing and contact tracing, meaning if you find a case, you immediately quarantine the person and, and, and figure out who they've been in contact with in the last several days and test all of those people. If you have all of that and you're ready to go, then you are probably ready to move into the next stage. And the next stage is going to be a little bit more complex and more nuanced than the current stage. The current stage is sort of straightforward. Stay at home, stay away from people, wear a mask when you go outside, clean your hands. End of story. The next stage is may, might be if you're over 65, you should still stay at home. But if you're not, uh, it's okay to begin going out. Um, you know, if you have antibodies, it's okay to go out, those sort of things. Uh, mm -hmm. it, it's going to be more subtle and a little bit more challenging for people to follow the directives because the directives are going to have more moving pieces than the current ones do. 
it's a really important part of the discussion, right? Look at South Korea. They've been held up as this model of curve flattening. And yet they just saw a slight uptick in cases this week. Professor Kobe says it's key to figure out how we go back to normal if we do it all. The question really is how much can we pull back on this mitigation while not overwhelming our healthcare systems? And of course, this is a new virus. We don't know exactly how it's transmitted. And so we have to infer that, you know, basically estimate it statistically by looking at what's happening in different populations as different measures are used. And as we see the case counts and and death counts rising and falling, but we'll never be able to go back to normal until there's a vaccine. We're going to probably have to keep Um, you know, imposing some sort of restrictions on mobility or else, you know, implementing really um, extreme types of contact tracing uh, in in order to keep this under control um, until we can induce immunity to the virus artificially through vaccination. Yeah. And it sounds like everybody's kind of all over the map as to whether or not this will come back. It sounds like it might be sort of a recurring virus. You know, I know we saw SARS kind of disappear, but we might not have the same hope that this will disappear in the same manner that we might be living with this thing every fall. Yeah, this is absolutely not SARS. SARS was something that you know, the public health community in multiple countries made enormous efforts to contain. So ultimately, it was only, you know, it only infected, well, you know, about, I think, 8,000 people or so. And and so basically, the cat's out of the bag here. This is a different virus. It's clearly spreading um, globally. And uh, there's no reason to think that it's going to go extinct in the short run, really. And it's looking a lot more like something like influenza or any of those other you know, uh, respiratory pathogens that are infecting us each winter. So, uh, yeah, I, I don't think there's going to be an easy escape from this virus anytime soon. Professor and epidemiologist Sarah Kobe, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. This is Tom Shalou with your Fox News commentary coming up. Before all this coronavirus insanity, you might have heard of Zoom and maybe even used it for business. The conferencing company has grown over the years, even becoming a publicly traded company. It's a dream coming true to have an opportunity to be a Nasdaq public company. That's CEO Eric Yuan. Zoom's stock initially priced at $36 nearly a year ago, back in April of 2019. Over the past several years, Zoom employees worked so hard to deliver happiness to our customers and partners, and I'm so proud of them. By the first of this year, Zoom had nearly doubled to $68 per share. Then came the virus and Zoom's boom, along with other conferencing apps like Google Hangouts and House Party. According to the New York Times, Zoom's first-time user downloads of its mobile app went from just over 6 million in February to 76 million in March, as Zoom's stock more than doubled, hitting a high of $165 last month. It has since come down, hit by Zoom bombers, which is what hackers or hijackers are called when they infiltrate these conference calls. We're talking work calls, personal calls, even schoolwork. The FBI is now investigating at a time when so many of us rely on this kind of virtual contact. Dave, nearly overnight, people went from living normal lives to living these online lives. Kurt Knudsen is a Fox technology expert, but we know him better as Kurt the Cyber Guy. 
there were those who knew about many of these services that are now becoming familiar, and then there is a vast majority of people who are finding it brand new and also running into some privacy challenges. Well, yeah, I mean, FaceTime, people have been using that on the Apple platform for years. So a lot of people can FaceTime and have been doing the FaceTime. The other thing that's exploded is the use of Zoom. How big was Zoom pre-coronavirus? You know, Zoom, Zoom is a very healthy-run company out of San Jose, uh, California, and in, in the Bay Area, where they, they were really targeting corporate clients. And then nearly overnight, because of Zoom's uh, great ability to be used on multiple platforms, I could be hooked up with you, with, you know, 30 other people, and it didn't matter whether you had a PC, a Mac, or Android phone, or a tablet, or an iPad, it all comes together. And that's where FaceTime sort of falls off the planet because FaceTime requires you to have an Apple device or one of the rare partners like Facebook has FaceTime built into their portal application, which is great for older Americans. But nonetheless, Zoom is on the map. And uh, at the same time, we're realizing some shortfalls that they have as easy as a service is. Yeah, so they went and they jumped in users and they have everybody doing Zoom. My son uses it for his schooling. My wife uses it for Friday night, you know, cocktail (laughs) parties where you can't be with anybody, but you can talk to people with these weird backgrounds. But with all of this being going on, there is this thing called Zoom bombing. What is that? So we've been hearing a lot about this. So Zoom bombing is where someone intrudes upon or hacks into one of your gatherings, meetings, or class lessons. So the worst thing that goes on, uh, and this has become commonplace now, because there are there are pranksters that gather together and strategize on how to break in to, for example, your child's class environment, and then utter obscenities or insult um, uh, teachers, oftentimes with racial uh, offensive language. And then we've even had people just beyond obscenities uh, displaying things you would never want your children to see or be part of. And Who would do this? Why? What is the? What? Why does anyone want to do all this? Your guess is as good as mine, but uh, chances are these uh, pranksters who I think most of which started off as it just being entertainment, uh, then it turned into malicious, uh, uh, real hate-driven activity. So what, what, what motivates them? Who knows? Boredom, hate, uh, the fact that they get to brag about it. You see a lot of people posting on YouTube the, the pranks that they've been able to pull off, and uh, YouTube, to their credit, is is trying to yank those videos down as to stop the behavior. But one thing that I think a lot of people don't realize, Zoom is super, you know, despite these issues, uh, Zoom is new to a lot of us. Right. So you still should think of Zoom as a great video conferencing application. I'm not saying don't use it. I'm saying use it with a, with a great deal of guard and an idea that you, you really have to take privacy in your own hands here in terms of protecting it. So Zoom has a lot of tools, and they're evolving. So one thing to think about 
is let's say that your your child's taking class lessons and they're using Zoom. You would want to make sure as a parent now to communicate with the school or the teacher saying, hey, I just want to make sure that you're setting up uh, proper privacy to, to keep these Zoom bombers out of my child's lesson. Are you All right, well, that? back up a second because a lot of teachers are brand new to this too, Kurt, and school systems have never dealt with this before, and they're implementing it quickly to try to get their kids still learning in this crazy environment. So how easy is it to put these protections in place? Well, you have to proactively go after them. Zoom says that they're going to make them easier and they're going to turn them into defaults. But the smartest thing to do right now is when you are the one hosting a Zoom call, which would be the teacher, which would be the boss or whoever initiated a a corporate meeting, or if you're getting together and you're the one hosting that 5 p.m. cocktail hour, you want to go on there. Number one, use a one-time unique ID when you're hosting that meeting. So when you're setting up the meeting, you want to look at the options and choose generate automatically that unique ID. And what that does is it removes that sort of license plate that comes with the uh, sign-up you originally made because once somebody knows that ID, they will troll you, and they'll just keep trying to get into one of your calls. So make okay. that unique. Number two, make sure you require a meeting password. Now, Zoom has said that they're going to make this uh, a mandatory thing. I, I, don't, I haven't seen it turned on yet. doesn't mean it's not this morning. But you want to set up a password so that you invite all your people to the meeting or the teacher invites all the kids and then gives them, once they RSVP, then gives them the password. And it doesn't need to be complicated. And then number three, you can also select to put everybody who's joining this video meeting into a waiting room. And then the teacher or you, the host of the cocktail hour or the one hosting the meeting says, yeah, I recognize Dave. I'm going to let him in. And and so only the people invited get in. And then you can also, you know, there's been some issues where people would put inappropriate things on screen sharing, record them, then post them on. And it may look like you posted something inappropriate. But you don't want any of that to happen. So you want to select also in the Zoom controls, only hosts can share the screen. So if you go to navigate to personal and then settings, in meeting, basic, then choose only hosts can share the screen. And that means no one else can put their junk up on everybody's screen at any one time. And you're in control of that as the host of the meeting. You, and then you finally, said the passwords don't have to be uh, complicated, Kurt, to back up a little bit. Um, we, you know, people have hacked into passwords passwords all the time. Why is it not necessary to be complicated? Because in, the, in this particular case, they're just going to move on to somebody that's not using a password, quite frankly. So it, these pranksters are not necessarily that sophisticated in terms of hackers. They're just disruptive and unruly and offensive. So they're, they're not smart enough quite yet to have come up with password-cracking applications that they're using in droves. Right. And they're so, not making money and stealing money on this, so I guess it's not worth it. As of yet that we're aware of, but you can bet that's coming. Um, and And finally, you know, if you're hosting one of these things and for some reason somebody gets into your Zoom call and you don't 
think they belong there or somebody gets out of hand, you can hover over their name and then click to boot them out. So you can just remove them, which is a real useful tool, especially for teachers that, that might have some you know kids that don't realize that their microphone's on. Another person in the family walks in and suddenly you're, you're witnessing some family drama when you should be focused in on school. Now, the the hackers who are doing this and the hijackers and the Zoom bombers, they have places online, right, where they gather? They do. They go and they brag, and I'm not going to talk about where they are because I don't want to promote it. Uh, but the fact is they go and they brag about this. They also get together and they try to target certain things together. And when, when this first started happening where teachers started to post on, say, for example, the school's website saying, hey, all my classes are going to be held here, that they went and trolled that and kept those codes. So they keep trolling and seeing if there's a classroom open on that code. You want to use a new code or the new, the, the first tip I have, the unique ID every single time. If you, if you, these are complicated, uh, when we're just talking about it on the radio, but if you want the step-by-step guide, I put it online at cyberguy.com. Because of what these Zoom boomers are doing, some schools are banning the conference service, which has been an important tool for so many for online learning with schools closed across America. That includes New York City, schools in Clark County, Nevada, doing the same thing, banning Zoom, and other school districts are as well, or considering what to do. Kurt, the cyber guy, is not on board with that. I would say that's that's a little too extreme at the moment, but uh, as my sister-in-law, who's a teacher in uh, the outskirts of New York in the Long Island area, said, you know, she's banned from using it. What's her alternative? She goes, I don't know yet. So unless the school system has an alternative to it as of yet, I wouldn't say bail on it. New York City, they're directing schools to use Microsoft Teams. What is That's that? A great, it's a, Microsoft Teams is fantastic. So it's another platform Microsoft's come together with that enables video conferencing. Is it as easy as Zoom? No. Um, is it more stable? Probably. Um, and have they equipped everybody with that technology? I don't know. But what, about, uh, what, if I, what if I have a Mac? You can still get into Microsoft Teams. So okay, all right. That's multiple platforms. It's easy to use. Uh, probably a little bit greater privacy. I don't think it's free, though. So if you, if you for example, are hosting these big gatherings, uh, there's a cost to that. What should people know as they teleconference and do all this? I mean, we're in a brand new world where there's so much virtual everything. Um, is there other ways people are putting themselves at risk? Yeah, I mean, I would just say this. When you think you've turned it off, maybe you haven't. So I would physically, if you're able, to turn off the microphone. Let's say that it's your your PC or your Mac that you're using. There's a way to just go into settings and disable the sound from going out. So you're turning down the input. The should, other I put thing tape, the should I put tape over the laptop, uh, the, well, light, I, the camera? I think when you see Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook put electrical tape over his uh, webcam, then there's a <laughs> yeah. reason to maybe consider that for yourself. That's excellent, excellent guidance. Kurt Knudsen, the cyber guy, thanks so much for joining us. Dave, always good to hear from you. Three. 
from the Fox News Podcast Network. Download and listen to Tyrus and Tim. Every week, Fox Nation host Tyrus and Fox News contributor Kat Tim give their hot takes, explore weird headlines, and share amusing stories. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Rate and review the Fox News Rundown on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It's time for your Fox News commentary. Tom Shalou. What's on your mind? Lately, we've been learning a lot just by watching and listening to the news. All sorts of infectious disease statistics, treatments, preventions. But during this extended quarantine, I'm learning a lot of other stuff as well. Learning a lot about working from home. I think many of us had an idea of what work from home might look like. Maybe that it would just be an easier version of our current job. I don't know if it's all that easy. You know, you have dozens of distractions in the office, but at home, you've got hundreds. I'm certainly not complaining. I thought I'd be going a little stir-crazy at this point. You know, I've never been good with time off. Usually on a vacation, four days is enough for me. Then I want to get back to work. If you'd have told me I was going to be away from the office for a month and basically confined to my home, I would have thought I'd really be losing my mind at this point, but I'm not. Now, why do you suppose that is? It probably has something to do with the fact that this pause is required. That way, the stay at home is not all on me. See, in the past, when I've taken time off, I'm aware that it's my choice and that at any time, I could choose to get back to work. Experts, by the way, say that's no way to do downtime and that people who take their full vacation are more productive when they return to work. In that sense, it's ironic that this work from home may teach me how to be a better manager and a better vacationer. I'm sorry to be talking about vacationing when most of us all just want to get back to work. I didn't really intend to do that when I started. You see what happens when I work from home? I get distracted. I'm Tom Shalhoub. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. Stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to the media buzz meter with Howard Kurtz. How he picks five stories, most important to the most entertaining to the buzziest. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America is listening to Fox News. This is Jimmy Fallon, inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding. It's only a three-hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com.